0: I'm not even going Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Good and gracious God, we give you thanks and praise for this opportunity to come together in the midst of this Christmas season to celebrate the fact that you became man, and to encounter you in your incarnate presence in the Word, because you are the Word made flesh. So as we read the words of sacred scripture, Lord, be present to us. Be born anew in our lives today, in this moment. And help us to be attentive and listen to the direction of your Holy Spirit. Listen for the still, small voice through which you speak to us. And please, Lord, remove any distractions, worries, or anxieties from our minds and hearts so that we may be free and unencumbered in our listening and in our prayer as we dive into your word. Bless us each in the ways we most need it, and we pray all of these things in your most precious name, Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Merry Christmas. This is coming out on Christmas Day, and so if you're watching this on Christmas Day, uh, hopefully you're also spending time with your family, but it's also great to be in the Word. And we are preparing for this upcoming Sunday, which is the Feast of the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. Always, usually, uh in the midst of the Christmas season, not usually, always, in the Christmas season, we celebrate this feast, and so our gospel for this upcoming Sunday is Luke chapter two verses twenty two through forty, the story of the presentation of Jesus in the temple, apart from Jesus' birth, and when he comes on the scene as a thirty year old adult to be baptized and begin his public ministry, we only have two or three scenes. Um, We have the visit of the Magi, we have him being presented in the temple here, and we have him being lost in the temple uh, at about 12 years old. And so this is one of these key, very important stories that the Gospel writers felt it was necessary to incorporate into the Gospel, even though there's all this hidden time between his birth and his public ministry. So this must be something very important for us to glean from this. And so we're going to read through this passage twice. And as we do the first time, I just want to, uh, you to paint a picture of this in your mind. You may have heard this story before. Uh, remove any previous ideas or images you have of these characters or of this scene and allow this to um, just hit your ears as if you've never heard it before. Allow the, the image in your mind to form brand new as you hear this story from the Gospels unfold. So uh, this is Luke chapter two, starting in verse 22, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. The shepherds come and visit, Jesus is circumcised eight days later, and then after 33 or 32 more days, 40 days total, uh, he is brought to the temple. So this is what Luke writes in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. When the days were completed for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they took him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, just as it is written in the law of the Lord every male that opens the womb shall be consecrated to the Lord, and to offer the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons in accordance with the dictate in the law of the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, awaiting the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Messiah of the Lord. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform the custom of the law in regard to him, Simeon took him into his arms and blessed God, saying, Now, Master, you may let your servant go in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in sight of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for your people Israel. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was said about him, and Simeon blessed them, and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived seven years with her husband after her marriage, and then as a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day with fasting and prayer. And coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had fulfilled all the prescription of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, And the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So we're now going to read this a second time. Now that you have a fresh image of this story in your mind, you get a sense for what's happening here. Uh, Mary uh, Mary and Joseph bring the child Jesus to the temple to purify themselves and to dedicate him, to present him to the Lord. And they have these two encounters, one with this holy man named Simeon and one with this prophetess named Anna. And so uh, now that we're going to read this a second time, I invite you now to still keep that image in mind, but to set it aside and to listen very intently to the words as they are being proclaimed. Is there a detail that strikes you? Is there something that resonates with you personally or that stands out to you for an unexplainable reason? Doesn't have to have anything to do with the theology or the interpretation of this passage. It just hits you spiritually. How does this speak to you personally? Pay attention to those things and begin to ask, Lord, what are you trying to say to me through this particular passage? So we're going to read this a second time, and final time, Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. When the days were completed for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they took Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Just as it is written in the law of the Lord, every male that opens the womb shall be consecrated to the Lord and to offer the sacrifice of a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, in accordance with the dictate in the law of the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, awaiting the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Messiah of the Lord. He came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to perform the custom of the law in regard to him, Simeon took Jesus into his arms and blessed God, saying, Now, Master, you may let your servant go in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in sight of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory for your people Israel. The child's father and mother were amazed at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword will pierce, so that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. There was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived seven years with her husband after her marriage, And then as a widow until she was 84, she never left the temple, but worshiped night and day with fasting and prayer. And coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting the the redemption of Jerusalem. When they had fulfilled all the prescriptions of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you, if you are with others or you'd like to take a moment to reflect and journal on your own thoughts or talk with them with one another, you can pause the video at this time. Uh, And if you do so, feel free to do that. Otherwise, we're going to go into interpreting this passage verse by verse to kind of glean whatever we can to better understand the context of what is happening here. So feel free to pause now or we will move ahead. Perfect. This starts in verse 22, referencing when the days were completed for their purification. So what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Torah, there was a law that's referenced here that every male that opens the womb shall be consecrated to the Lord. Uh, Now that was uh, in Exodus. This is in Exodus chapter 13, verse 2. Uh, it says, the Lord spoke to Moses and said, consecrate to me every firstborn, whatever opens the womb among the Israelites, whether of human being or beast belongs to me. Now you would do this, you would bring the firstborn animals and children to the temple and you could either dedicate them completely to the Lord and offer them to him, or you could redeem the firstborn by payment of five silver shekels. And I believe this is in Numbers chapter three, uh, verses 47 and 48 it says, you shall take five shekels for each individual. According to the sanctuary shekel, 20 geras to the shekel, give this money to Aaron and his sons as a redemption price for the extra number, for all of those extra firstborns or those who are being dedicated to the Lord. So that became a common practice. So they're going to the temple to, one, consecrate their firstborn to the Lord. But there's no mention of the redemption price. So it's clear that even from the very beginning, they have no intention necessarily of claiming him back for themselves. They understand. That he is going to be offered, like the Lord is the one who is going to do the redemption through Jesus. They are not the ones who are going to redeem him. He is the redeemer. And secondly, there is a law of purification in Leviticus chapter 12 that reads this way, starting in verse 2. When a woman has a child giving birth to a boy, she shall be unclean for seven days, with the same uncleanness as during her menstrual period. On the eighth day, the flesh of the boy's foreskin shall be circumcised. And then she shall spend 33 days more in a state of blood purity. She shall not touch anything sacred nor enter the sanctuary till the days of her purification are fulfilled. And then it goes on to verse 6. When the days of her purification for a son or a daughter are fulfilled, she shall bring to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting a yearling lamb for a burnt offering and a pigeon or a turtle dove for a purification offering. The priest shall offer them before the Lord to make atonement for her, and thus she will be clean again after her flow of blood such as the ritual for a woman who gives birth to a child, male or female. If, however, she cannot afford a lamb, she may take two turtle doves or two pigeons, the one for a burnt offering and the other for a purification offering. The priest shall make atonement for her, and she will again be clean. And that's the whole 12th chapter of Leviticus. It's pretty short, all about this need to purify the uncleanliness of a woman after she gives birth. Now, don't misinterpret this <clears throat> biblical uncleanliness does not mean that there is a moral judgment being made about the mother that she's somehow immoral or in a state of sin uncleanliness meant that there was something about the bodily activity that meant the loss of life or the uh, connection or contact with death in some way so if you touched a dead body you were ritually unclean if you um, engaged in the sexual act, you were ritually unclean. If you came into contact with blood or if you were bleeding, you were ritually unclean because blood was the essence or the place in which uh, the Jews believed that your life force was held. And so they had all these rituals, rituals surrounding the fact that we want to make sure that we are full of life and completely restored of any contact with death or decay, so that we can approach the Lord as alive and restored as possible, so that we are not defiling the things that are holy by our own humanity, by our own uh, decomposition as humans, that we are all kind of going to die. But we are, uh, we are restoring ourselves in such a way that we are made worthy to, uh, to approach the Lord and his temple and the things that are reverent. So uh, it's not a moral judgment. If she was um, like ritually impure, if she'd done something impure and she needed to be purified, Then that would be some kind of moral judgment against some kind of sin or action that she had done, but that's not what it means when someone is unclean. It's usually through no fault of their own. Um, Some situations when people were ritually unclean, like if you were a leper, there were some interpretations um, from Jewish rabbis that would say, well, you became a leper. You were given leprosy by God because of some sin that you did. It was a punishment, but not in the case with childbirth. Obviously they were very much open to that in this culture and they wanted to offer they're first born to the Lord. Uh, they wanted to have a family through which to pass on ancestral land and heritage and their namesake and all of these other things. So um, those were the Old Testament kind of Torah laws that this is established on. So it's very clear that the Holy Family, Mary and Joseph in particular, are being very faithful to God and the law and the teachings that he has revealed thus far. They're being faithful Jews and they are modeling Uh, faith that is well-practiced. They are being obedient. And that's why this reading is one that is read at the Feast of the Holy Family, because the Feast of the Holy Family is meant to remind us that holiness starts in the home and we have the opportunity to pass on that holiness to our children. It is our responsibility as parents and our parents to us to raise us in the faith in such a way that we are pursuing the Lord just like they are and they are called to be that example. Now we live in a broken and fallen world with broken and fallen people and broken families and so that is obviously not always the case but that is the goal and yet even when that is not the case or the ideal or best examples are not present in our family, God gives himself to us with his own family, to foster us and adopt us into this perfect family, so that we can understand our role in pursuing holiness by the example of those in our heavenly family, and this divine family that provides an example for us. And so um, this example is being faithful to what the Lord has asked. Look at all that can happen when we are faithful uh, to what the Lord asks. There's a uh, a, a priest, uh, father Father Peyton. And he created a ministry about like the family rosary ministry um, all across America. And uh, one of his his catchphrases is the family that prays together stays together. And so it's kind of on this mantra that we're looking to Mary, Joseph, and Jesus as the holy family as an example to us. How to pursue holiness within the family, us as individuals, recognizing we're part of this divine family. And also seeking to purify our own families and follow that example together. And so it's clear they were being faithful to God. They knew the law. They knew what was expected of them. And even though they just given birth, even though they had to travel to Jerusalem to do this, uh, and it was probably very inconvenient to travel, especially just after giving birth and learning how to adapt to this newborn's needs, they still made this because this journey because it was what was required of them and asked of them by the law, which was from God. And so they are an example of faithfulness to us. Um, And they help us see that in being faithful to God we can encounter God in these powerful ways because this doesn't just go like a standard Presentation or purification offering all these other things happen, okay? So a little bit of context here when you go into Jerusalem and you get to the temple mound The temple mound has a big open courtyard area called the court of the Gentiles where anyone could go and then once you enter kind of the proper area of the temple the inner courtyard is called the court of the women. And the treasury was there, is where people could come and present offerings. And then there was kind of a staircase up to this archway where the inner area of the temple was. Now, the men could approach and they could offer the, uh, the sacrifices and animals to the priests who would meet them there and the Levites who would meet them there. And the priests and Levites were the only ones allowed into the inner temple area that had its own courtyard where uh, the people who had offered sacrifices could visually see through the doorway, the archway. Their priests and Levites preparing and offering the sacrifices, especially those for the sacrifices of burnt offering. There was an altar of burnt offering right outside the physical temple. And then inside the temple was the temple of incense, or the altar of incense. There was a table of showbread, the menorah, and then past the curtain was the Holy of Holies, where originally the Ark of the Covenant was, but it had been lost at this point, and where the presence of God used to be before he left in Ezekiel uh, chapter 10. Um, and so, or Ezekiel, ch- yeah, chapter 10. Uh, and so that is what kind of the temple structure looks like and where they are, okay? Um, so they come forth with this offering, and it says here um, that they're consecrating Jesus to the Lord, they're being faithful according to the law of Moses, they're doing what is asked of them, and they offer a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons, which is clear that this is mentioned because Joseph and Mary are poor. They are taking the prescription from Leviticus after uh, chapter 12 that is for those who cannot afford a a lamb, a year-old lamb. And so it was clear that they could not do that, otherwise being the faithful people they were, by example, they would have done so. And so uh, this is one of the places where we can see that Jesus didn't grow up with any type of luxury or wealth. He grew up in very simple means. He chose to enter the world in a very humble and very kind of silent, unseen, mysterious way, and to take his time being raised as a wise and a strong man of God, to come into the knowledge of who he is, to uh, prepare for his ministry and his mission, uh, with the guidance of his very holy parents, Joseph and Mary. So we we have that whole uh, opening section, and then we go to verse 25. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. Now Simeon here, he's not a priest. It's not specified he's a priest or a Levite or a Pharisee, a Sadducee, anything like that. It just says that he was righteous and devout and that the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was awaiting the consolation of Israel. The word there for consolation is paraklesen. That's where we get the word paraclete, a word that we use for the Holy Spirit. And it's, it says here that he has the Holy Spirit, and this is before the Holy Spirit is given. In fact, in the Gospel of Luke and Acts of the Apostles, they were originally one big uh, scroll. It was Luke, Acts. They were both written by Luke. And it was one story from the beginning of the Annunciation of John the Baptist and Jesus, all the way to the ending of the church being uh, out on mission for the Gentiles all over the world. And so Luke, throughout Luke and Acts of the Apostles, he says that uh, certain individuals are filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's a certain number of them, I'll let you guess, it's a Catholic number, there's seven, seven individuals who are filled with the Holy Spirit. And the first of which is John the Baptist. He's filled from in the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother because he is preparing the way for the Lord. So everyone who is filled with the Holy Spirit is only filled with the Holy Spirit because of their role in, in uh, making sure Jesus' mission comes to fruition. Okay? So John the Baptist obviously needs the Holy Spirit. Then uh, that's in verse 15 of chapter 1. Then in verse 35, Mary. The angel Gabriel says the Holy Spirit will come upon you and overshadow you. Then in verse 141, Elizabeth, she's filled with the Holy Spirit when the child, John the Baptist, in her womb leaps and recognizes in the womb the presence of his Savior in Jesus in the womb of Mary. And that fills Elizabeth with the Holy Spirit to be able to articulate, yes, the child that you carry is blessed. Then Zechariah in verse 67, he is filled with the Holy Spirit when he sings the canticle of Zechariah. All about this birth and how his son John the Baptist is going to prepare the way of the Lord, that it's going to be the uh, fulfillment of all these prophecies of the salvation for the people of Israel. And then we have Simeon, that he is filled with the Holy Spirit to prophesy and give this oracle about Jesus being the one that he has waited for, being the one who is going to bring salvation and to be a light to all people, a revelation to all people. Jesus is the next person in chapter 2, verse 22, who is the Holy Spirit descends upon him like a dove at his baptism. Obviously, he had you know a relationship with the Holy Spirit before that because the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. But in his human form, experiencing that uh, descending of the Holy Spirit, that's how Luke writes it. And so that's only six. And we don't have anything else until the Holy Spirit comes upon the church in Acts chapter 2. So just as seven is this number of completion... The giving of the Holy Spirit symbolically in the way that Luke writes it in Luke and Acts of the Apostles is not complete until the Holy Spirit is given to the entire church. And even then, the Holy Spirit is always on a mission to identify Jesus as Savior. Everyone who is given the Holy Spirit, it is so that a sign will be given about the identity of Jesus. Even when Jesus receives it, it's so that the heavens will be opened and people can hear the voice of God proclaiming, this is my beloved son. So the Holy Spirit is always about convicting us to know the identity of Jesus. That's what Scripture says. No one can say that Jesus is Lord without the Holy Spirit. That's what the Holy Spirit can do in us. So that's what Simeon was waiting for. He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's been kind of predestined in some sense to have this role to identify Jesus. But he still needs to be receptive to the Holy Spirit. He still needs to say yes and be listening. And so he's drawn to the temple. Simeon also represents here the Old Testament because he's an older man, he's righteous and devout, but he's named for one of the 12 tribes of Israel. Simeon was the second born of Israel, of Jacob, who was renamed Israel. He's a second born son by his first wife, Leah, Rachel's sister. And um, Simeon gets in trouble uh, in a couple different places. One, he's obviously one of the brothers who sells um, Joseph into slavery, but he's also one of the two brothers, Simeon and Levi, who avenge the rape of their sister Dinah. One of the Canaanites named Shechem comes and rapes Dinah, their sister, and instead of pursuing the proper things that the Lord had intended, uh, they go out and they take revenge and they kill this man. And so uh, that's not great, obviously. Uh, Vengeance and murder is not stuff stuff that the Lord uh, recommends. And so that name carries with it that tribal identity, but it carries with it also the fact that there is brokenness in that tribal identity. Simeon is also one of the 10 tribes of the northern kingdom that were lost when the Babylonians and the Assyrians came in and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel. So there's this sense that he is representing here the long-standing tradition of the Old Testament people and the desire for the Messiah to come and reunite the 12 tribes of Israel. Later on, we'll see Anna, the daughter of Phanuel. She's of the tribe of Asher. That's another one of those 12 tribes of Israel. Asher was the second child of Zilpah one of the wives or the handmaids um, of, she was a handmaid of Leah that was given to Jacob to have more children with. And um, Asher, uh, he ends up taking some of the land in the promised land all the way to the north, where Simeon takes it all the way to the south, even south of Judah. And so they represent kind of the whole swath of the geographical terrain of the promised land. And both of them are uh, uh, two of those ten tribes, that are wiped out to be lost. Uh, And the only tribes remaining are Benjamin and Judah uh, during the time of exile. And so they just in their names, in their ancestral lineage that's mentioned here, represent the Old Testament and being a male and a female, also representing in this sense, kind of an Adam and Eve type figure of the Old Testament where they are coming together, both representing the brokenness of Israel and the need for a savior, the messianic expectations that Jesus is coming to fulfill. And they are both, Validating that Jesus is the one who's coming to save them. Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he should not see death before he had seen the Messiah of the Lord. So obviously he knows what his mission is. He's looking for the Messiah. He came in the Spirit into the temple. When the parents brought the child to him to perform the custom uh, of the law, he took Jesus into his arms. Wouldn't this be like totally... I was like reading this a second time and I was like, if I'm at church you know, for the baptism of my child, let's say some kind of equivalent of this. And some old guy that I never know comes up and just grabs my kid. I am not really going to be one to listen to whatever oracles apparently come out of his mouth. I'm going to be like, give me my kid back, you know? Um, But it's clear there is this holy receptivity that Mary and Joseph are modeling for us, that they have this anticipation that God is going to speak to them. He's going to work in their lives and they are open and ready to receive whatever that looks like. So Simeon blesses God, and he says, "Now, Master, you may let your servant go in peace." This uh, text here uh, is called the Nunc Dimittis. It's the first oracle of Simeon. But Nunc Dimittis is the Latin for "Now you may let your servant go." The first line of this, uh, or a different translation of that. Um, basically, it's giving him. It literally means like permission to depart in Latin. Um, there are really beautiful. Uh, classical compositions and settings of this text. It was a common hymn that was set by many composers in the history of church music, and it is also a part of the the night prayer that the church says every night in Compline, one of the, uh, the hours of night prayer. If you pray Liturgy of the Hours, they always pray the Nunc Dimittis. And so this is something that is constantly on the mind of the church in her prayer, that all of these ways that we have been anticipating the Lord, now you may let your servant go. And that's why we, we say it at, in night prayer, because we're going to bed. And so we're basically saying to God, like, all right, Lord, you've saved me. You've come to save us. And if, I, if this is you know, your will in my, in my sleep that I die, let your servant go. That we are kind of offering ourselves to the Lord, recognizing we have already identified our Savior in Jesus Christ every night when we go to sleep to pray. Uh, go in peace according to your word. That word for word in Greek is rema. It's the same word that Mary uses when she says, may be done to me according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation. What does the name Jesus mean? God saves or Yahweh saves. So his identity is actually and his name itself is already fulfilling this prophecy that uh, Simeon here is referencing for which you prepared in the sight of all the peoples a light for of revelation for the Gentiles and glory for your people Israel. Now, it's pretty wild here that Simeon is referencing this particular passage. He's referencing a lot of different uh, things from the the prophet Isaiah. In fact, Isaiah is sometimes called the fifth gospel because of how often it's quoted by the New Testament writers and by Jesus himself. It might, I think, be one of the most quoted Old Testament books in all the New Testament. Um, And so he's quoting this about salvation being for the Gentiles In the vicinity, the actual area of the temple, which is the symbol of salvation for only the Jewish people. So it's very upside down and ironic here that this is the location, and the location always matters and is important. This is the location where this is being proclaimed. Kind of showing that this is no longer going to be the way in which you connect to the Lord, the way in which you offer sacrifice to God. It's going to be different, and it's going to be not just for the Jewish people, but for all people. Let's look back at a couple of these prophecies. Um, They are in Isaiah chapter 42, verse 6. I, the Lord, have called you for justice. I have grasped you by the hand. I formed you and set you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Even in the Old Testament, this was something that was prophesied. Would not be just for the Jewish people, but would be for all people. And in Isaiah 49, verse 6. I will make you a light to the nations, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Again, not just the Jewish people. And Jesus fulfills that in his commissioning, where he says, at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, go, and bap- go to all nations, and baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. To all nations. Exact same phrase used in Isaiah is used here, and is used later by Jesus, and then is confirmed later that this is actually what the church does, and what the church desires. In Acts chapter uh, 13, in verse 46 and 47, let's read 47, for so the Lord has commanded us, this is Paul speaking, he's saying, the Lord has commanded us, I have made you a light to the Gentiles, that you may be an instrument of salvation to the ends of the earth. So the early church of Jesus Christ saw themselves as the fulfillment of this prophecy in the good news of Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. And then later in Acts chapter 26, verse 23, uh, to see that the, um, all that the prophet Moses foretold told that the Messiah must suffer and that as the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. And that phrase, light, Jesus brings it up again later in John chapter 8, verse 12 I am the light of the world. And even the very beginning of the Gospel of John, that the light came to to, uh, to crush and overcome the darkness in John chapter 1, verse 5. Uh, and so all of this very laced with Old Testament prophecy. And the early church clearly saw Jesus as the fulfillment of these prophecies. And they articulated that when they went out on that same mission he commissioned them on to fulfill this prophecy to go and bring salvation to all people. So very impressive that this would be proclaimed in the temple, a place that was very exclusive, um, a message that is very inclusive of all people to go and uh, be part of this covenant, that we should go out and find them and bring them into the family of God. Then verse 33, the child's father and mother were amazed at what was said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, Behold, this child is destined for the fall and rise of many in Israel. The word there for rise is anastasin. It's the word used later in the New Testament for Jesus' resurrection. To be a sign that will be contradicted, and you yourself a sword will pierce. A sign that will be contradicted, this also kind of points to some things in Isaiah, uh, particularly in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 14, where it says, He shall be a snare, a stone for injury, a rock for stumbling to both the houses of Israel. Jesus himself sees this uh, in, in what he preaches. And he has no problem saying this in Luke chapter 12, later on in this gospel, in verse 51, he says, Do you think that I have come to establish peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And we've studied this passage before in Bible study, uh, and we know that his interpretation, or how we are meant to interpret that, is that Jesus doesn't come to divide and condemn. He comes in such a way that we have to make a choice about whether or not he's our Savior, and that choice is what divides us. We, there's no way... Jesus can come and claim what he did and for us to sit on the fence. It demands a response. We have to say Jesus is who he says he is or he's not. And that can bring division in our families and in our friendships if we choose differently than those around us. The later writers in the New Testament, namely St. Paul and Peter, they understand Jesus also as this stumbling block that is prophesied uh, in Isaiah chapter eight. In 1 Corinthians chapter one, verse 23, Paul writes, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. He recognizes not everyone's going to get it. Jesus is going to be divisive and people are not going to be on board. And then Peter, when he writes in 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, therefore, it is value for you who have faith, but those without faith, the stone which the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone that will make people stumble and a rock that will make them and Peter there is quoting other places in the Old Testament, Psalm 118, and then that passage Isaiah 8, and that's mirrored other places in the New Testament. They clearly understand that Jesus is prophesying; it was prophesied about as a child here, and then prophesied Himself that I am this prophesied one who is going to be a stumbling block for the Jews. I am the one that will cause division because you cannot encounter God in this way and not make a decision not decide, is this the savior or not? And once you make that decision, there's a line in the sand and you're on one side of it. We cannot straddle that line. We cannot be lukewarm in whether or not we're going to follow Jesus or not. I I quote this often, but uh, I think it was was T.S. Eliot who said, uh, the Christian condition is one of complete simplicity, requiring no less than everything. We have to be 100% in on the right side of that line, or 100% out, there is no middle ground. And Simeon here, from the very moment of Jesus being presented in the temple at 40 days old, is prophesying that that will happen. He says, and you yourself a sword will pierce, prophesying the sorrows and the suffering that Mary will endure. Not only will Joseph die sometime in these hidden years before Jesus, between Jesus being 12 and 30, but then Mary will see all of the things that Jesus has to endure. So there's this very beautiful devotion to the seven sorrows of Mary and basically you read through the scriptural citations of these seven sorrows and you pray a Hail Mary after each one. It's a really beautiful devotion to kind of show how Mary in her grief and in her suffering can be with you in your grief and in your suffering and that our church doesn't shy away from suffering or explain it away as like, oh, that was your own cause. No, like this is a result of sin. God didn't want it for you. God does not create death or destruction, but he allows us to have free will. And when we turn away from God, that corrupts ourselves and the world and suffering results. And so we experience trials and suffering, but God will always bring something good out of it. Not only that, he doesn't just sit up on his throne and let us suffer until he decides to do something about it. He can completely relate to our suffering because he walked in human flesh. He understands the fullness of human experience, and so does his mother. Even though she was conceived without sin, she also lived a completely faithful life to the Lord without ever falling into sin, and yet still suffered and understands our suffering and can be with us interceding on our behalf in the midst of our suffering. So I'd encourage you to look up the Seven Sorrows of Mary. Uh, They're basically reflecting on seven different moments. The first sorrow is this prophecy from Simeon, because this must have been very striking for her to hear. The second one is their flight to Egypt, trying to flee King Herod, who's trying to kill all of the the young Jewish boys uh, under a certain age to get rid of this prophesied Messiah. The third sorrow is um, the losing of Jesus in the temple when he's 12. The fourth sorrow is uh, meeting Jesus on the way of the cross. The fifth is his crucifixion and death. The sixth is uh, taking down the body of Jesus and her holding him, that famous image of the Pieta, which has been sculpted by many people, including the famous Pieta by Michelangelo in the Vatican. In fact, I think Michelangelo made about two or three Pietas, but people generally know that one. And then the seventh one is his burial in the tomb. And so you can allow Mary to walk with you in your suffering as you walk with her and her suffering through the pages of Scripture to know that suffering has purpose and there's always a resurrection. There's always a redemption on the other side of suffering. God doesn't allow senseless suffering without purpose. He allows suffering to respect our free will but always seeks to bring about some sort of good from it. So a way which we can journey with that sorrow of Mary and why uh, it says here that uh, her heart a sword shall pierce. If you've ever seen the image of the Immaculate Heart of Mary, there are seven swords, I believe there's seven, in, the, in her heart, and that's part of where the symbolism comes from as well. Um, so the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Jesus himself prophesies at the moment of judgment or at the end of time, everything will be made known, everything will be revealed. Verse 36, there was also a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. We've talked about Asher, um, but Anna uh, is a Hebrewization or another pronunciation in Hebrew of the name Hannah. And Hannah... Uh, has a story in 1st Samuel chapter 1 that very much mirrors what we're seeing happen here. Uh, In 1st Samuel chapter 1, Hannah uh, is married to a man named Elkanah, and she uh, cannot give him children. And he has another wife who's bearing children and is uh, mercilessly kind of uh, uh, teasing and uh, belittling Hannah for not being able to bear a child. So she goes to the temple, and she's weeping, and she's crying, and she's found there by, uh, by Eli, I believe, the, the, the priest. Um, and he, um, he tells her that you're going to have a child and he's going to be consecrated to the Lord. You, you shouldn't shave his head. He shall not have any um, like strong drink. He basically takes a Nazarite vow. Um, and he promises her that she will bear a son. And so she promises him... That if she does, she's going to consecrate him to the Lord. And so that's what happens. So she comes back after she has her son, Samuel, who becomes a great prophet. And in verse 24 of 1 Samuel chapter 1, it says Once Samuel was weaned, Hannah brought him up with her, along with a three year old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and presented him at the house of the Lord in Shiloh. After they had slaughtered the bull, they brought the child to Eli. Then Hannah spoke up Excuse me, Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood here near you praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted my request. Now I, in turn, give him to the Lord as long as he lives. He shall be dedicated to the Lord. Then they worshipped there before the Lord. And then, immediately after that, in chapter 2, it says, And Hannah prayed, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted by my God. Sounds kind of like my soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord. The Magnificat of Mary is very much a mirror and a development of the foreshadowed prayer of Hannah here when she is rejoicing at the birth and the dedication of her child, Samuel. So just as Samuel was an anointed one, he was a prophet who would anoint kings like Saul, David, and Solomon, who would create the temple, which they are now in. They are prefigurements of Mary, who is, in this instance, redeeming all that was wrong with the Old Testament covenants and allowing the Redeemer, to be brought to the temple, to be consecrated to the Lord, not to pay the redemption price to bring him back uh, home for themselves, yet he does return home, but to recognize he does not need to be redeemed by us because he will be the one doing the redeeming. Hope that makes sense. Um, She was advanced in years, having lived seven years with her husband. Seven years is always a good, holy, complete number. And then as a widow until she was 84. 84 is seven times 12 two very significant numbers in the biblical numerology. Seven, again, means perfect, holy, complete. Twelve obviously represents the twelve tribes of Israel. And she is standing, again, like Simeon, in this tradition of the Old Testament tribes uh, and awaiting the redemption and the reunification of Israel. She never left the temple, but worshipped night and day with fasting and prayer. Now, this is hyperbole. Um, You know, there was no place to sleep in the temple, especially for women. Uh, There were houses for priests and Levites. So there is a chance that maybe she was a Levite, but usually it was only the men who served in that capacity. So what this likely means is that she came every day to pray all day and fast in the court of the women in the temple area. Um, That was just what she wanted to do. And that was how she probably gained a living. If she was near the treasury, people might offer her money and care for her. Uh, the people who worked at the temple might offer her some of the extra meat from the sacrifices that they were given. So this may be a way in which she's able to kind of sustain herself now that she's been a widow for so long. Uh, she worshiped the light, uh, the Lord day and night with, with in prayer, and coming forward at that very time, she gave thanks to God, just like Hannah and Samuel do, or Hannah and Eli, and spoke about the child to all who were awaiting the redemption of israel fulfilling these prophecies that one would come who would redeem this is in isaiah chapter 52 verse 9 break out together in song O ruins of jerusalem for the lord has comforted his people has redeemed jerusalem so these one of many prophecies in the old testament about how this redemption is promised there's also a vision in ezekiel i told you earlier that in ezekiel chapter 10 It says, then the glory of the Lord left the threshold of the temple and took its place upon the cherubim. The presence of God leaves the temple never to return. But there is a prophecy later in Ezekiel in chapter 43 of a vision of the the heavenly temple. And it says, then he led me to the gate facing east. Ezekiel saying, God led me in this vision to the temple. And there was the glory of the Lord of Israel coming from the east. And just like You enter the temple area from the eastern gate of the city, just like the Magi came from the east to identify Jesus. Uh, Jesus here is now physically in the temple as a child, and in many ways fulfilling that prophecy from Ezekiel 43 for the redemption of Israel. Then, verse 39, when they had fulfilled all the prescriptions of the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. The child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Many of those phrases, grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him, are also used to describe people like Samuel, Samson the Judge, uh, Moses, Solomon, other people in the Old Testament that were these priest, prophet, or king figures that foreshadow the fullness of those symbols in Jesus that he is the high priest, the final priest, he is the last prophet or prophetic word. Uh, from God that he will entrust to the Apostles, and he is the King of Kings. And so all of this uh, is to communicate to us the example of a holy family, how to be receptive to God coming to us, uh, and in our faithfulness to God, we recognize that God could speak, God could move, God could work miracles at any given moment, and also to recognize if we don't have the perfect family, Well, Jesus does, and he offers that to us. He invites us into the fold to be part of a family, which is the body of Christ, the church. This is our home. This is where we experience the Holy Spirit and are filled so as to proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. We need family, but family can look many different ways for many different people. And the church, brothers and sisters, is your family. And I feel compelled to speak into or minister to or even apologize for the ways you've felt in the past that the church wasn't a family. That maybe you met priests or religious or other Catholics or you went to churches where you felt judged or shooed away or belittled or condemned or condescended to. And that is not the intent of what the church is meant to do. That is a result of fallen people, sinners, comprising the church, of which I am one. And there are probably people out there who I have stirred away from the church or I have said the wrong thing to or who I have not encouraged in the right way who uh, are no longer around, or who are struggling in their relationship with the Lord. And so we all need to be aware of the fact that, especially in the midst of this Christmas season, there are gonna be people visiting our churches, people traveling, Uh, the way in which we welcome other people is so important. And if you yourself have not felt welcomed, I just invite you to sit with this passage and recognize like this family's faithfulness is an invitation to you to bring that faithfulness into your own life and to be welcomed into this family because this is meant to be your home, where all are welcome, a light of salvation to all people, not just to the chosen Israel, not just to the people who look holy or appear to have it all together, but to everyone. The church, as is often said, is not a museum for saints, it is a hospital for sinners. And so I invite you to really just meditate on that. In fact, you know, um, this last week, in the church made news that Pope Francis had issued a document about the use of blessings and how uh, blessings could be extended to same-sex couples. And there's a lot of confusion about that. And he's very clear. This doesn't mean it's a sacrament. It doesn't mean we're affirming them. It doesn't mean that we are um, validating their union. It cannot be confused with a wedding, cannot be aligned with a civil union. It cannot happen at mass or in any type of ritual. What Pope Francis is saying is that we can use blessings as a sacramental for everyone and anything that we desire to bless as a church. Because what a blessing does is doesn't affirm the person. If someone comes forward and says, Father, can you give me a blessing? He doesn't ask, okay, well, how are you doing with the Lord? Are you sinning? Are you in a state of grace? He just gives us a blessing. And that's what Pope Francis is saying because there are parts in the world, especially maybe rural parts where the church uh, is developing or still understanding how to live out the moral law where people are being pushed away or not welcomed into the church because they're being judged for their moral character first, instead of being able to come forward and receive the mercy and the grace of God. And so what a blessing does is it doesn't affirm a person's sin, it invites them into the truth. It gives them grace and blessing from God to receive His compassion and mercy and to know Him more deeply. It doesn't affirm anything or validate anything that they're doing that doesn't align with doctrine. There's no doctrinal change in that letter. Uh, and it is very much in line with what's in the catechism about blessings uh, and that blessings are the highest form of a sacramental. I think that's around 1670, 1671 about blessings being sacramentals in the catechism. And so if that's something that you've heard in the news, I just invite you to to uh, look maybe in that part of the catechism and recognize like God is inviting all of us into his home. That doesn't mean that we don't need to change. You know, I, I often say, I've heard this said by others, you don't need to change in order for God to love you, but God's love will change you. That God's love is free and available to all. That anyone can come forward to come to church, to come to mass, uh, to receive a blessing. But that doesn't mean everyone is ready to participate in the same way. That everyone is ready to approach the sacraments in the same way. But everyone is able to approach God because he has already approached you. He's already sought you out. If you even have the desire for blessing or the desire to pray, the catechism says it's because the Holy Spirit was at first at work in you. And so the presence of God is pursuing you. God desires you to be part of this family, and so when we celebrate this Feast of the Holy Family, I invite you to really just receive that and reflect on, do you feel part of the family? Have you made other people feel part of the family? How can you be more involved in the responsibilities of this family? Offering your gifts, your time, your talents, etc. And also recognizing what miraculous things can happen if I have this receptivity of the Holy Spirit and faithfulness that are modeled by Mary and Joseph the receptivity and the ability to speak in the gifts and the devotion that you have in people and examples like Simeon and Anna. Are there people in your life who are examples like that? Who are you potentially that example for? Or who could you be that example for? So much richness to reflect on in this passage uh, on the presentation of the Lord, the fourth mystery of the Joyful Mysteries of the Rosary, and also our Gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the Feast of the Holy Family of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph. And so we ask for the intercession of our Blessed uh, Mother of St. Joseph uh, to pray for us, to be with us, uh, that the Holy Family would be journeying with us this week as we close together in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord, help us to be faithful. Lord, help us to see ways that, um, in, in the example of this reading, the many ways in which you are able to restore and make whole again the things that were broken or lost. And so in the ways that we feel broken or lost or cast aside or disregarded, help us to experience your love and mercy in a new way this week. Help us to hear the invitation and the welcome home into your family that we so long to hear and that our hearts truly desire. We pray, Lord, that you would help those in our lives who have turned away from the church or who have fallen out of practicing, that you would welcome them home, that you would help us and those around them who are faithful to uh, be loving examples uh, and uh, would invite them into the compassion and mercy that you have to offer. And that we would be able to do that without judgment and we would allow your grace, your truth, your mercy and compassion to convict and bless them so that they will be invited into this family. So we pray, Lord, for the gifts and the ability to do that, the awareness to see those who have that need to know you and the awareness of the ways that we still need to grow in our identity as members of your divine family. Bless us each in the ways we most need it and bless us in the midst of this Christmas season to continue to celebrate with joy that you became man so that we would not have to die and perish in in eternal damnation forever, but would have the gift of eternal life. Thank you, Jesus. We pray all this in your most precious name. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.